that in that moment I felt like vengeance itself. She was there to protect him. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host, Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today is my wonderful co-host. Hi, everybody. It's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. How are you, Jim? Good. Of course, I'm still dealing with this whole winter cold flu season thing, but uh, it just makes my voice a little more Barry White-like, I think. A little growly, Jim. It's nice. (laughs) Well, today I have the honor of cross-examining you Uh about one of your cases. And what's it going to be? Well, Jim, I have to say, out of all the cases I've ever prosecuted, I think this one is actually my worst. Not one of my worst, but my worst. Wow. Okay. Well, that's a pretty horrible thing, I'm sure. So... Why don't we start with what kind of case was it? It's a child abuse case, a Mm. physical and sexual child abuse case. Well, those are never good, so I can understand right from the top why it could be a worse case, but it sounds like something really bad must have happened. Definitely. So where were you in your career when this case came to you? This was very early in my career. In fact, it was the first job I had right out of law school. I was an assistant district attorney in the Muscogee Judicial Circuit, which is in Columbus, Georgia. Mm, Never even heard of it, but small town? It is a small town. It was a bit of a culture shock for me. When I got the job, it was 1996. And I, the Atlanta had just had the Olympics, mm. and it was an exciting time in Georgia. And well, I didn't they have a bomb at those Olympics? Well, yes, they did. They did, and that's a whole other issue. But I started in the fall, right after the Summer Olympics finished of 1996, and one of the first things I experienced was the good old boy network. Whatever is that? <laughs> well, that's where in middle of the South Georgia, mostly men 
are in the judicial system. Mm, really? And that's right. And I'm sure our listeners will remember one of my other worst cases that I lost and had the jury foreman come and ask me out on a date after insulting me. So that's kind of what I'm talking about. It was a sort of, oh, isn't she tough, pat her on the head kind of attitude. Hmm. There were only two female prosecutors in the office at the time when I joined. And um, I, of the three of us women, was definitely the most aggressive prosecutor in my attitude and my uh, attitude on sentencing and I think generally on crime and punishment. Are you trying to tell me that you're not just the genteel, demure Southern <laughs> belle that you present to me? Oh, Jim, I know that sarcasm. Mm. Even growly, it's sarcasm. But no, I mean, I am very, very tough on crime. I always have been, I always will be, and I make no apologies for it. All right. So what were you doing when this case came into you? Well, I was sitting in my office as the new kid in the office. I had no windows. It was an interior office. And I'm sitting in my office when my chief assistant district attorney, a man named Mel Hyde, I consider to be my mentor, mm. brought me a case file and said, here's a new case. And what did and he say about the case? He said it was a child abuse case. And at that time, I had handled other kinds of cases, obviously, but my passion was crimes against children. And this wasn't my first. My very first trial, in fact, was a crimes against children case. But I handled drug offenses. I handled aggravated assaults, attempted murders, um, even shoplifting, as every new prosecutor did. But this was one of the worst things that I had ever read. And maybe at that time, when I read the facts of this case, to me, it was the worst thing I'd ever seen. Wow. Wow. So... Do you want to tell us basically what the facts of the case were? So in the summer of 1997, Tony and his big sister, Amber, Tony was four years old. I'm not going to use his last name. And his big sister, Amber, were living with their father in Florida. He had custody of the children. Their mother, they were divorced. Their mother was a soldier at Fort Benning, Georgia. Hmm. She actually worked in the Judge Advocate General's office. So she was a prosecutor or a no, defense attorney? No, she's just a staff member. Oh, okay. She's not a lawyer. But she worked in the Judge Advocate General's office there in Fort Benning, Georgia. The father didn't trust the mother and didn't want the children to visit her that summer. So they fought about it in court. And a judge in Florida ordered Tony and Amber's father to allow Tony and Amber to go visit their mother for the summer, for 30 days in the summer. And mostly, the father didn't want them to visit because of the new stepfather. Mm. Andrea had married a man named Thomas Porter. So Thomas and Andrea Porter both worked at Fort Benning. Thomas Porter was a medic in the Army, and Andrea Porter, like I said, worked in the Judge Advocate General's office. So that summer, Tony and Amber came to visit their mother and their stepfather. And almost right from the start, Thomas started abusing Tony. Ugh. Tony, as I, as I said, was four, a four-year-old boy that 
Thomas Porter thought wasn't obedient enough. And so they came to- This is the medic. This is the medic. He is a medic, a trained medic. So he started beating Tony almost immediately. He would do things like punch him in the stomach, the four-year-old. And things began to escalate. We learned that the abuse went on for several days. Where was the mother when this was happening? She was working. Thomas Porter took the week off. They were going to switch off watching the kids during this 30-day period. And the first week, Andrea Porter was working. And so Thomas Porter was home with Amber and Tony. And he didn't like Tony's attitude. Tony didn't like his stepfather and wanted to be home with his dad. Mm. And so he was somewhat undisciplined. And Thomas Porter responded by punching the child in the stomach. And then he started punching him in the throat. And on day two or day three of this first week of the visit, Thomas Porter became very angry. And he got out his wife's curling iron. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. And first, he burned the child on the upper thigh, severely, with the curling iron. That night, Andrea Porter got home from work. Did she take Tony to the doctor? No. Why? That's an excellent question, Jim. Why, indeed. It was to protect Thomas Porter. Did she then decide to stay home to protect Tony? No. The next day she gets up and goes to work. So this is day three, day four. Andrea Porter is at work. She gets a call from her husband, Thomas Porter. Her co-workers overhear her side of the call. And she gets very upset and says, what did you do? Oh, my God, I'll be right home. Mm. She goes home. Tony is lifeless. He's not breathing. God. He's severely injured. And so did they call 911? I'm thinking not. They didn't. She bundles her lifeless four-year-old in the car and drives him to the hospital. Now, mind you, she has already taken the time to come home rather than call 911 and have an ambulance go to the child. And rather than call 911, once she arrives there, they simply take the child themselves And to the, the stepfather is a medic. He is a medic. The child is not breathing. They arrive at the emergency room. As... Doctors and nurses everywhere can attest. They move heaven and earth to save four-year-old Tony's life. He's now been not breathing for who knows how long, but it's certainly minutes. Well, it's more than minutes because it took minutes for Thomas to call his wife. Yep. It took minutes for her to then get in the car and get home. And then it took more minutes for them to drive to the hospital. So he's been not breathing for a long time. I would later speak to the neurologist who treated him that day in the ER. He was the on-call neuro guy. 
I would talk to him later and he would tell me that he almost regretted what happened in the ER. And that is, they saved Tony's life. Really? They revived him. Oh, my God. It took them a long time. And these doctors and nurses are heroes because they saved Tony's life. But the neurologist would later tell me that he was certain that Tony would never walk again. Oh, jeez. That Tony would be blind. That Tony would never have normal bodily functions and would probably never talk. He thought he would be completely disabled and unable to care for himself in any way. So the medical personnel recognize the signs of child abuse. Mm -hmm. They see the severe, approximately two-day-old burn on the child's thigh. And they do, after they save his life, a thorough examination. The child has also been burned with a curling iron. Um, I'm sorry, listeners, this is me very difficult. Um, (sighs) In his anal cavity. Unbelievable. They would also find, by the way, they documented all of this with photographs, which are really the worst things I've ever seen. They would also find, to their shock, teeth marks on the child's genital area. What? Where Thomas Porter had obviously bitten the child. They would then discover strangulation, signs of strangulation around the child's throat. This was is a four-year-old boy. Four-year-old boy. Oh, my God. Who obviously did nothing wrong and who was severely br- beaten. Thomas beaten Porter. and brutalized and choked and sexually assaulted oh, and raped. What a... I know. It's a hideous case. It is a hideous case. So police were called. Detectives immediately respond to the hospital. They take Thomas and Andrea Porter into custody and put them in separate interrogation rooms. Good. And they begin to interrogate Thomas Porter. Eventually, the full story comes out. And he admits everything that he did. Really? He does. He said that the child disobeyed him multiple times, and he was enraged. The one thing he never admitted was biting the child's genitals or inserting the curling iron in the, and can I just say, hot curling iron in the child's rectal area. But he admitted everything else. He said that he punched the child repeatedly in the stomach, and then he strangled him in frustration so angry with whatever misconduct he claimed the child was engaged in that he strangled him into unconsciousness and the child stopped breathing. So he pulled out his stethoscope because, again, he is an army medic, pulls out his stethoscope, uses it, does chest compressions, brings the child back to life, gets him breathing again, and repeats that process at least three times. What? Continues to strangle the child. This guy is absolutely... A sadistic bastard. I mean, there's just no way around it. I, I, uh, 
Yeah, the worst, worst case that I ever worked is very similar to this. The same kind of just horrible, horrible excuse for a human being. I mean, makes me sick. It is. It was sickening. And I'm sitting in my office. I'd been a prosecutor about a year. And I'm, I'm reading these reports from the detectives. And I'm literally baffled. I, I cannot understand how this can happen. And... Uh, you know, I'm almost crying, sitting at my desk, looking at these photographs Can't imagine. of the injuries to this little boy. I think it's the most difficult thing I've ever done. And I'm getting chills sitting here trying to stay even because it is, um, it, I'll never forget it. Mm. I'll never forget it. And I'm not ashamed to say that in that moment, I felt like vengeance itself. I immediately said to myself, I don't care what I have to do. These people are going to prison forever. Mm. I wish the death penalty was in operation for this case because that I would have pushed the button myself. I was so angry. And of course, as a prosecutor, you're trained to try to be dispassionate and even keeled. But I'm sorry, not in this case. Not me. Mm. I couldn't do it. So he confessed mostly to everything, admitted to basically killing the child and bringing him back to life. So, but rationalizing it thoroughly, saying it was deserved because the kid was misbehaving. Oh, absolutely. It was not, it was not his fault. It was Tony's fault. It was the four-year-old's fault for being disobedient and for flagrantly disobeying his rules, whatever those rules were, and for telling him, I hate you. That's what he said generated his rage to strangle the child because little four-year-old who'd been incredibly severely injured telling him he hated him. Now, keep in mind that the medical evidence in this case was that The child's thigh burn was at least two days old, and the burn to his rectal area was at least a day old before the child got to the hospital. And at that point, I don't want to get too graphic, but at that point, um, it would have been obvious to anyone with eyes that the child was severely injured. And yet the mother still went to work? She still went to work. She still went to work. That night before they took him to the hospital, he was so severely injured. The doctors later testified that they don't think he would have even been conscious. They're not even sure he would have been conscious because of the severity of those injuries and being repeatedly struck in the stomach, which damaged his internal organs. And still, Andrea Porter did not call 911. There's no evidence in that house of any treatment being given, bandages, nothing for burns, nothing, and then got up the next morning and went to work again, leaving her severely injured four-year-old in the custody of the man who had nearly killed him. Well, and who would go on to kill him a number of times. That's right, at least twice that he admitted. So Tony is in the hospital uh, recovering. He will forever be blind and never be able to walk. 
because of the severe brain damage, because of the lack of oxygen for a long period of time. And that is why the neurologist told me later that as harsh as it sounds, in a way, he was sorry that they had revived Tony. Successfully. Successfully. Because he said he just didn't, they were so torn, he didn't know if they were doing the right thing. Because what would that child's quality of life be? Not being able to see, talk, walk, and have to be so severely disabled for the rest of his life. So I get the case. And I am determined to bring Thomas and Andrea Porter to justice. Now, this case became very, very high profile in the local Columbus, Georgia community because it was soldiers from Fort Benning. The injuries to the child were so severe that it was newsworthy and very notable. Mm. The father of the children, he came to Columbus, of course, when he heard that his son had nearly been killed by his stepfather. And he was... uh, Beside himself. Yeah, well, I can imagine. He was obviously enraged. Uh, he was infuriated at the judge for making him hand the children over to the man who nearly killed his son and certainly disabled him. And so I met with him. We brought charges. This is the kind of case where when you hear people say, let's throw the book at him. Oh, I did. Hmm. We absolutely threw the book at him. We charged them, both porters, with every single thing I could think of. I was taking no chances that a jury would not convict him of multiple crimes. And I was, and I admit this freely, hunting for the biggest sentence I could get. I was hoping that the judge who tried the case would stack, if I got a conviction, would stack the sentences. In other words, they would be consecutive, mm-hmm. one upon the other. Well, there are multiple crimes repeated over a period of time. That's right. There were. There was aggravated battery, aggravated sexual battery, aggravated child abuse, aggravated assault, attempted murder, failure to seek medical treatment, cruelty to children. And we charged Andrea Porter as a party to the crime to most of the cruelty charges, Mm -hmm. not the sexual charges, but the cruelty charges. And my boss, the DA at the time, a man named Gray Conger, decided to try the case with me. Thomas and Andrea Porter decided to go to trial. Mm. It's one of those things where there's just simply no question about his guilt. He had confessed. But he was looking at so much time because of the charges we brought that he really didn't have any reason not to go to trial. He might as well roll the dice and see if he could get acquitted on something or if there was an error in the trial that would force us to have to retry it. And then maybe he could negotiate a better plea position. I assure you, he would have never negotiated a better plea position with me. It wouldn't have mattered. I would have tried him 1,800 times Mm. for the same thing. So we go to trial. And this was my first experience with anything that was high profile. Local Columbus news stations were in the courtroom. Mm. So it was sort of gavel-to-gavel local news coverage for this case. a lot of pressure for you. It was a lot of pressure. It was the first time, too, social media was really just starting, and I was getting criticized online, which the Columbus DA's office was only just getting online for, like, my clothes and what I wore in trial. It was a bizarre experience, and later in life I would sympathize with Marsha Clark. Yeah, really. That for was sure. so ridiculous. It was. Her hair. I'm a curly-haired girl. I mean, so her hair, her clothes, her makeup, everything. 
And so I got an early taste, a small taste, not certainly that kind of national um, attention, but I would get a small taste of what it was like. And the real pressure, though, was sitting in trial with my boss. And for all the prosecutors and agents, investigators out there who've tried cases where the elected or the appointed U.S. attorney sits with the the actual worker bee mm-hmm. in the trial, that actually brings its own pressure because the elected has not lived the case. And so what my job was to not only try this case, but to try the case and give him everything he needed mm. to try the case because he didn't have time to prepare. So I had to prepare all the witnesses wow. myself and then hand him sufficient materials to do his own direct and cross-examinations and help him write his opening statement. And we both did a, a closing argument. So it was a lot of pressure, but most of the pressure for me came from Tony. I am happy to report that Tony recovered a little. Really? So by the time of trial, it was about a year later, by the time of trial, Tony was able to talk. Wow. Tony was in a wheelchair and blind. But a sunnier, happier child I have rarely met. Really? His father brought him to my office one day to introduce him to me. I didn't ask him anything about the abuse. I never had any intention. Mm. He was five years old. I was never going to say anything to him. But I wanted to meet him because I wanted to call him as a witness. Mm. And so his father brought him to my office, and he was smiling and asked everyone's name and shook hands with everyone. It was incredibly emotional to see the child that the neurologist was convinced would certainly never talk or communicate. Right. And he was happy and sunny and very communicative and very talkative. Wow, that's a miracle, huh? It was a miracle. In fact, when I called the neurologist in to prepare him for his testimony, he didn't believe me. Really? I told him that the day before I had met Tony... And talked to him. And he said, no, that can't be right. That child's a vegetable. I said, no, sir. He is not a vegetable. Wow. Wow. So the neurologist was just amazed and said that it would change his attitude going forward. And that he was going to let all the doctors and nurses who had worked on Tony know Mm. that he wasn't a vegetable, that there was hope for him. And so that's one of the things that was amazing about the case and amazing about Tony himself. So you got to tell me, did he take the stand? He did take the stand. Did the boy actually testify? Not really. I called him as a witness. And there's a way in Georgia to call um, someone as a witness almost as a piece of evidence, if you will. Hmm. His father carried him into the courtroom and sat with him in the witness box. And all I did was I said, and I'll never forget it. I remember his entire testimony. I said, hi, Tony, my name's Francie. You remember meeting me. Oh, hi, Francie, how are you? I said, I'm fine, Tony, how are you? I'm good. Tony, do you know where you are? Yes, I'm in a courtroom. What's your whole name? And he gave his whole name. And how old are you, Tony? I'm five years old. Thank you. That's all the questions I have. He's with you. And that's an old Southern way in the courtroom of saying you're witness. Mm -hmm. But in South Georgia, that's right. You say he's with you. And so it's their turn to stand up and cross-examine. Both defense attorneys stood up and said, no questions, Your Honor. 
mm. which was smart, very, right. very smart. Yeah. So the jury got a chance to simply see the child, see that he was blind, see that he couldn't walk, uh, which allowed us to prove some of the aggravated battery hmm. injuries. And then it was the defense's turn to present their case. So one of the most disgusting things that happens sometimes in trials like these is, so picture a courtroom. Uh, the judge is at the front. I'm facing the judge. I'm on the right-hand side of the, my right-hand side of the courtroom. The jury box is to my right. The DA is sitting to my right. So I'm in the center aisle of mm -hmm. the counsel table. Directly across from me at the other table is Thomas and Andrea Porter. Thomas Porter is sitting ne effectively next to me, about three feet away. Then Andrea Porter and then their lawyers. The entire trial, the entire trial, Thomas Porter sits with his head down, sobbing, with snot running out of his nose. The whole trial? The whole trial. It was disgusting. Pathetic. And it just made me angry mm -hmm. because it was such crocodile tears bullshit. It made me so mad that it just gave me so much energy the entire trial because all I wanted was for him and his wife to take the stand. And oftentimes defendants, contrary to what you see on TV and the movies, they don't testify. There's too much risk. Mm -hmm. And he had confessed. Right. And she had a huge risk in taking the stand because she then would have to answer. For why she didn't do for why she anything did nothing. to protect him. Right. And then was going to have to be faced with every question about every injury that happened as it happened and what she did and what she saw and why she didn't do anything. But they both testified. What? They did. My boss cross-examined Thomas Porter, who had the same behavior on the stand as he'd had throughout the trial. He literally had a garbage can in front of his face and kept his head down and just sobbed. The entire time and admitted everything except the anal Six. injuries and the, the biting of the genitals. Even when Gray stuck those photographs right in his face of the injuries, he just denied them. Then Andrea Porter took the stand. And did you get to cross-examine her? I did. I got to cross-examine Andrea Porter. I cross-examined her for four hours. You took it through every single detail of every, every injury? Every single second of those days that we could recreate with the doctors, the detectives, and Thomas Porter's confession. And what I the took hell her through. did she say? I didn't know. I didn't see it. I didn't notice. And I'm not going to get graphic, but there were some very severe injuries that would have been obvious to any human being walking in that house. There was no way not to see this bloodied, battered, burned oh, child's geez. injuries for days, for days. And so I took her through everything. She denied it all. She had the nerve to come into court wearing her army uniform mm. as if that would insulate her from conviction, from accountability, from responsibility. That just made me matter. I can understand. So four hours, I cross-examined her. She never confessed. She was, her lies were obvious. Her inconsistencies were obvious. We thought. We hoped. But remember, this is the South. Mm. And I had had another case before this 
where we tried a grandmother and grandfather for sexually abusing their granddaughters. And the jury had acquitted the grandmother, saying that, well, you know, it's kind of the culture for just women to do what the husband says. So with that case in my head, I was concerned. Oh, my God. So the jury goes out. And for those of our listeners who have never tried a case or been involved in a prosecution like this, I have to tell you the worst moments are when you're waiting for the jury to come back. Absolutely. I can remember them clear as day. They're the ones that stick with you. So every moment the jury is out, you second guess yourself. Of course. And if they ask for evidence to be reread and things like that, you know, you're like, why do they want that? They don't believe that. Oh, my God. What witnesses are they looking at? What witnesses did they not understand? Right. You wait for the questions. The questions come in and you just are freaking out about what they mean. Like you say, you go back over your jury list and you try to think, okay, who's the four person going to be? Are they going to be good? Did we pick the, did we pick a good jury? I mean, did I say the right thing in closing argument? Did I ask every question I wanted? At one point when I was cross-examining Andrea Porter, the judge, who was an older judge, interrupted me. Right at the end of hour two, I was literally in the middle of a question. I was in such a flow. I felt like I was almost like you see on TV, I was going after her. Right. And he stopped me in the middle. I think now is a good time for a break. I wanted to kill him. Oh, well, he did it on purpose to save her. Of course he did. Oh, my God. I was so mad because she was looking really nervous, shifting in her seat. And I thought, I'm going to get her. Right. And he interrupted me right in the middle of cross. So I'm thinking about how how that impact the jury. What are they thinking back there? I would later learn that this was my nickname-giving case. Really? The jury would tell me later that in the jury room, they nicknamed me the Dragon Lady. Ooh. I don't know if that's... I wear that with pride. Okay. I wear that with pride. And it was because of my cross-examination of Andrea Porter. Okay. Um, So how long was the jury out? The jury was out for several hours. Which made us really nervous because Thomas Porter confessed on the stand. Andrea Porter clearly was lying. And so we were thinking, what are they doing? Mm. I would later learn that they were doing their job. It takes a while to elect a four-person. That's usually a good half an hour. And then they went through every piece of evidence. They really did. They discussed every witness. They looked at the horrific photographic evidence. Mm. And they did their job. So... We get a call. We're in the DA's office, which is in the same building with the courthouse. We get a call. The jury's back. And I have to tell you, right then, being a prosecutor is not a job for someone with a weak heart (laughs) or a heart condition. Because the second that call comes, ba-bang. I mean, really, my heart starts to race. You can feel it because I just feel all this pressure to get justice for this child and to make sure these people are held accountable. And to have those decisions taken out of your hands is actually the hardest thing about being a prosecutor. Absolutely. I don't decide who gets convicted. So... Gray and I get in the elevator and we go up to the courtroom and we go in and we sit down and there are the defendants shackled. They get brought into the courtroom and the jury files in and they don't look at us. They don't look at the defendant. They don't look at anybody. So those old tropes about who the jury looks at tells you what they've done is just not real. Mm. At least not in this case, it wasn't real. So my heart is just banging in my chest. My boss's hands are sweating. I mean, he really is feeling Mm -hmm. the pressure. And he's an old prosecutor. I mean, he's been there for 30 years. But he's still feeling the pressure. And so the jury foreman stands up 
and opens the verdict form. We, the jury, find the defendant, Thomas Porter, guilty. And they convicted him of every charge. My heart is still pounding because I kind of expected that. And now I'm wondering what's going to happen with Andrea Porter. Please. We, the jury, find the defendant, Andrea Porter, guilty. And they convicted her on every count. Oh, my God. And I am just... I'm almost in wow. tears yeah. in the courtroom because I'm so emotional about this case in a way I know I shouldn't be, but I cannot help being emotional. I'm still emotional about this case today and about Tony and what happened to him and the horror that he experienced at the hands of his mom and his stepfather. And so unlike what happens uh, sometimes on TV or in other states, sentencing's right then. It's we're we're sentencing. Really? There's no messing around. Wow. We're going right to sentencing. The judge sends the jury out and it's time to sentence the defendants. Thomas Porter is looking at a, a maximum of about 60 years when you stack all the time of all the crimes. And the judge sentences Thomas Porter to 60 years in prison. Wow. He gets a pine box sentence because he's about 30. He's never coming out alive. And I thank God for that because he's a horrific, horrible, terrible, criminal person. Then it's time to sentence Andrea Porter. And I'm worried Mm. because old Southern judges uh, have a lot of things in common. And that is they tend to go lighter on women. It's just a fact of life, or at least it was then. And I, I wanted her to get every bit as much time as him, although she wasn't facing quite as much time. Do you get to make an argument about sentencing? Oh, God, yes. And I do. I make an argument. I tell the judge that these are horrific people, that she is every bit as guilty as her husband. She was there to protect him. That's right. And she was his mother. His biological mother. That's right. His flesh and blood. And she spent night after night after night after night, four nights, four nights, she watched her child suffer and bleed and cry and did nothing. My God. And the judge sentenced her to the max 30 years. Wow. And I was pleased. Wow. Well, you did an amazing thing, an amazing thing. And even though you got convictions on all counts for both defendants and you got maximum sentences for both defendants, you still rank this as the worst case. Why is that? Just because of the horror of it. I'll never forget Tony's face, and I try to remember that, but what I remember are those photographs Mm. of his injuries, and I am blessed or cursed with a vivid imagination, and seeing the photographs and thinking what he went through as it was happening to him Mm. is almost more than I can bear even today, and that's why it is my worst case. Well, I definitely can understand that, and I'm sure our listeners can, and I know that this was a difficult episode for you to talk about, Francie, and I think that's a great demonstration for our listeners, who I'm sure it was also a very difficult episode to listen to. We appreciate you listening, though, because people have to understand that these are the kinds of things that kids go through, and it's why people like Francie are heroes for doing their job. And it's a very, very, very difficult job. And it's a very, very difficult job to do. 
So I thank you for doing it, Francie. And on behalf of that little boy who miraculously recovered to some degree and all the other kids and other victims that you helped, thank you for doing your job. Thanks, Jim. And thank you, listeners, for listening to this very difficult episode of Best Case, Worst Case. But it should give you some idea of what it's like living behind police lines. Till next time, thanks for listening. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A., Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories about child sexual abuse can make us feel powerless. But the good news is that there are organizations working to prevent abuse and keep kids safe. Darkness to Light and their Stewards of Children Prevention Training has trained more than 1.4 million adults to protect, recognize, and react responsibly to child sexual abuse. But there's more work to do. And with their 4 million by 2020 goal, Darkness to Light is setting their sights on training 4 million adults around the country to keep kids safe. By donating to Darkness to Light, you can help reach this goal that will make communities across the country safer places for kids. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org today to give. That's www.d2l.org.